So we'll talk more about the uh, high road uh, in a couple weeks when the young people uh, will be with us um, to encourage you to help our friends at Nourish Bridgeport at the First United Church of Christ at United Congregational Church in Bridgeport, our sister church that is doing such a wonderful job in reaching out to our neighbors. So today, I want to uh, share with you uh, two passages from Scripture, first from the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter, beginning at verse uh, 16. I think we'll only go uh, to uh, 21, not all the way to 30. Um, we'll go 16 to 21, and then we'll return to uh, Paul's letter, uh, his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13 for our second examination of this uh, seminal a document in our life of faith. So Luke's uh, account is the first occasion that he reports on after Jesus returns from his time in the desert that had followed his baptism by John. He went into the desert, and there he was tested, tried, formed, transformed. Um, and when he returned, in Matthew and Mark, first thing he says when he comes back is... Hear the good news. Repent. Turn around. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around and perceive the kingdom of God that's right around you. Turn back to God and understand how God is working in the world and in your life. Turn back, turn around, and see the goodness of life. In Luke's gospel, that's not the first thing he says, but what he does say is, in a sense, an explication of that idea by looking back to the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there are really, in a sense, most scholars now agree there are three different sections. The first section having to do with the time before the conquest by the Babylonians when Isaiah is imploring the Judeans to turn back from their evil ways, to repent, to turn to the goodness of God. The second Isaiah is written to console the Babylonian exiles during that time of being away from their homeland. And third Isaiah, written as a way of encouraging the exiles when they've returned uh, to Jerusalem. Isaiah 61, where Jesus will quote, comes from 3rd Isaiah. The idea that having been returned to Jerusalem, the exiles become, in a sense, a shining light of God's love for the world. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Now, the story goes on from there, and when we have more time on another occasion, we'll spend more time explicating that second portion. But most scholars like to call this Jesus' inaugural sermon. Interesting phrase. But it's clearly his statement of purpose. He has come, as Isaiah proclaimed, to bring good news to the economically disadvantaged. That's what he means by the poor. Matthew softens this a little bit in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke, Isaiah, very clear. The economically disadvantaged, through no fault of their own, but by a system that is rigged against them. To bring good news, which means the leveling of the playing field so that all will have an equal opportunity. Proclaim release to the captives. They've just come out of captivity in Babylon. They know that most captivities are unjust or too long or grinding down to the human spirit. They are retributive justice rather than restorative experiences. Recovery of sight to the blind, and in fact he will bring sight to those who cannot see, and he will invite those, as he says so often, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes, let them see. And to let the oppressed go free, a people oppressed by Babylon, and in Jesus' day, oppressed by Rome, yearning that their necks no longer struggled to breathe under the knee of oppression and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or the acceptable year of the Lord. What's an acceptable year of the Lord? A year in which all people are treated with respect. A year in which all people have an equal shot at life. A year when people are not pushed down but lifted up. A year when everybody recognizes in each person they encounter the living presence the embodiment of God's love in them. Each one is a child of God. God created humanity and said, Behold, it is very good. Not that some are good, but all are good. Now, of course, we know that the story of Adam and Eve is a myth, a metaphor, not to disparage it. In fact, it's it elevates the importance of the story in Genesis. It's not science. Science, in fact, tells us that it's not Adam and Eve, it's Lucy, our great mother from the Great Rift Valley in Tanzania, Kenya, right on the border. We are descended from one woman, Lucy. No, no, not Lucille Ball. It's not Lucy and Ricky, it is Adam and Eve, but Lucy the progenitor of all humanity. We all come from Lucy. We are all, in fact, related. Enough genealogical research, and we're all members of the same family, clan, kindred, beloved of God. Now, this understanding informed everything in Jesus' life and ministry, of course. In the sense of mutual responsibility and care that comes with that lies at the heart of all that Paul had to preach in his 
ministry to the Gentiles in the ancient world in the Eastern Mediterranean. If I speak in the tongues of mortals or of angels, I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, even off of my body, as a sacrifice so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not envious. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in the wrong, but rather rejoices in the right, in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, this is not romantic love. This is not human love. This is not eros or philia, because they do come and they do go. We are passing and frail in the commitments and the love that we share, sincere as they may be at the moment, but to follow through over the long haul, we are envious and spiteful. We are too often jealous and angry, resentful and bitter. We do all too often insist on our own way. We rejoice in wagging our fingers at each other rather than praising each other. So that's not the kind of love of which Paul writes, not the kind of faith and hope that grounds his faith. For this love he writes, agape, love, unconditional love. Love, this love, never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in a pat, only in pat, and we prophesy only in a pat, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When the impartial comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. Amen. Last week we focused a lot on the Greek idea, concept of faith, expressed in the word pistis, which focuses more on the relational quality of faith, that is to say, a trusting relationship that we have with God, rather than so much believing in a set of theological propositions to believe in the faith, quote-unquote, the faith as a received a body of knowledge to which one must subscribe. No, that's not faith, and Paul understands it, or in the concept of the Bible. Faith is this trusting relationship 
with God who is worthy of that trust, but we can only discover the faithfulness of God when we throw ourselves and cast ourselves onto the mercy of God, let go of our desire to be in control and find there the great caring arms, the wonderful presence, the merciful peace that God bestows. God who is faithful and true, merciful and loving in all circumstances. It's this matter of trusting in this God. Now, the Trinity, as it were, in Paul is faith and hope and love. In the Greek, elpis is the word of hope. Now, sometimes when we say, I hope that this will happen, we mean, I have no idea whether it will happen or not, and I don't have any agency to make it happen, but I hope it happens. Like, I can say, I hope the chief wins, the chiefs win, but I can't make that happen today. Some of you hope that the patriots will win as well. That's a kind of hope, but that's not the biblical concept of hope that Paul is talking about here at all. In his last book, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his last book, entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, contains this quotation. We must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. We must accept finite disappointment. Sometimes our efforts and desires, our plans come to naught. But we must never accept, we must never lose infinite hope. Elpis, this Greek idea which is really more of expectation, confidence, trust. In Paul's understanding, in the Christian framework, hope is not an empty-headed optimism. It's not naive. It's not hoping against hope. Rather, hope is a deep understanding about how things are and how things ought to be and then an understanding of how we can act in congruence with God in cooperation with God and with each other, how we can act, that is to say, exercise power to bring about that which ought to be. An understanding of how things are, an honest evaluation and analysis of the way things are currently, a deep understanding about how they ought to be, that is to say, God's dream for humanity And then the understanding that if we work together, if we band together, if we organize ourselves and exercise power with God, then we can make that happen. That is Christian hope. Not a vain hoping against hope. Not an empty-headed optimism. 
but a clear-headed, even hard-headed analysis of how we can get from here to there. This is why I'm very excited about our new relationship with CONNECT, Congregations Organized for a New Connecticut. CONNECT is organized people, us and the people from the nearly 50 other congregations who belong to CONNECT in southwestern Connecticut, and organized money, the money that we put together to enable our work to address not just the ills of society, and any analysis easily and very quickly demonstrates the ills of our society, not just to address those ills, but to address the roots of those ills, those sins, those places and methods and systems that cause suffering for so many people. So the quest for justice is the pulse of hope. The quest for justice is the pulse of hope. Again, from Reverend King's last book. What is needed is the realization that power without love becomes reckless and abusive. Power without love becomes reckless and abusive. And what is needed is the realization that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love, creating everything that stands against love. That is to say, that stands against God. I love the quote from Cornel West, the American philosopher and public intellectual who says justice is what love looks like in public. This is the root of our hope. The quest for justice is the pulse of our hope. Knowing how things are and how God dreams that they might be and that we can be engaged actively, personally, in bringing that new reality into being. This is the foundation. This is our hope. Amen.